2015 is when I really started going and seeking medical help for that to figure out what was going on. And what was that experience like? <laughs> um, that was a lot of doctor visits with a lot of different kinds of doctors. Um, it was really frustrating. Um, one, it was expensive. Um, and also going to the doctor when I now know I have a compromised immune system, I kept getting sick all the time that you're just from being in doctor's offices all the time. Um, but the biggest thing really was just nobody ever knew anything of, of what to do and they just kept throwing out guesses and these guesses sometimes were quite harmful. Um, quite often for a long period of time I was put on all different medications that were supposed to help me sleep. Um, at one point one doctor put me on a medication that was so strong that subsequent doctors have had to test me for organ damage. Medical error is purported to be the third leading cause of death in the U.S., killing a quarter of a million Americans annually. 23% of Europeans have been affected by medical error. Bad science embeds ME as medical harm globally, making millions missing. But less than 10% of medical errors are reported because medical error is the secret many healthcare systems and governments work hard to hide. Wrong medication, wrong dose, amputate the wrong limb. I am Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews, and I talk with patients and families, physicians and advocates about medical error. They share secrets, stories, and most importantly, solutions. Medical Error Interviews is brought to you by my online counseling service, RemediesCounseling.com, a safe space for people affected by medical error, chronic illnesses, and other life matters. A note of caution, some may be distressed or triggered by the medical experiences of guests. Hello, humanity. I'm Scott Simpson. And in this episode of Medical Error Interviews, I chat with Lisa Alioto. Lisa is a lawyer who has climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. Unwittingly to Lisa, conquering that incredible physical challenge would prepare her mentally for even greater physical and medical error challenges. Years later and well into her law career, Lisa began to experience extreme exhaustion and extreme sleeping problems that progressed to blackouts, memory loss, and vision loss. In an effort to find out what was causing her debilitating symptoms, Lisa encountered a number of misinformed, uneducated, and careless physicians. Lisa was exposed to multiple medical errors including a twisted version of cognitive behavioral therapy and so-called exercise therapy, both of which exacerbated her illness and made her more sick and disabled. Eventually, Lisa did get a proper diagnosis of a neuroimmune illness. Not one to sit back and let injustice continue, Lisa has taken her experiences with medical error and is advocating for other people in the community so they don't go through the same medical experiences and delayed diagnosis that she encountered. 
You can find Medical Error Interviews podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and other podcast platforms. You can subscribe and leave a kind comment. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash medicalerrorinterviews and become a monthly patron. If you are experiencing your own issues with medical error and need the services of an experienced counselor, you can book an appointment with me through my website, remediescounseling.com. Now, here is my interview with Lisa Alioto, and here why Lisa says that in some ways, this illness has made her a better person. And so, Let's start back uh, in your childhood. Uh, where did you grow up? What was your childhood like? Siblings? Okay, um, so I was born in Milwaukee. Um, I have one sibling. It's an older brother um, who's a couple years older than me. Um, my parents have been married for 50-some years. Um, so I grew up in Milwaukee, but throughout my childhood, we moved around a lot. So I lived throughout the Midwest in um, Michigan, Indiana, and then eventually moved up to Minnesota where I went to college. And then I moved down to the Twin Cities area for um, law school. Okay. And what did you do uh, for your undergrad degree? I was a psychology major and a criminal justice minor, originally thinking I wanted to be a police officer. Um, and then needed some extra credits, took a paralegal certificate, and decided going into law school is the way to go for me. Okay. And uh, when did your illness begin? When, what were the first signs, and how old were you? What was going on? So it was a very gra- gradual onset for me. So I would say it probably started in 2014 um, when I was about 43. Um, What I first noticed was just, I was getting more and more tired and going to work was getting harder because I was more and more exhausted. Um, And then as we got into like 2015, it got to the point where it was, my I wasn't getting restorative sleep to the point that I wasn't able to really function very well at work. Like I don't think they noticed it at work, but I noticed for myself, I was putting in so much more extra effort because I was so exhausted um, and my sleep quality was so poor at that point. And it just kept declining and declining. And so in 2015 is when I really started going and seeking medical help for that to figure out what was going on. And what was that experience like? <laughs> um, that was a lot of doctor visits with a lot of different kinds of doctors. Um, it was really frustrating. Um, one, it was expensive. Um, and also going to the doctor when I now know I have a compromised immune system, I kept getting sick all the time that you're just from being in doctor's offices all the time. Um, but the biggest thing really was just nobody ever knew anything of, of what to do. And they just kept throwing out guesses and these guesses sometimes were quite harmful. Um, Quite often, for a long period of time, I was put on all different medications that were supposed to help me sleep. Um, At one point, one doctor put me on a medication that was so strong that subsequent doctors have 
had to test me for organ damage to see if that medication, they, they said basically you were given eight times the strength that we would give a, a, a large guy um, as opposed to somebody of your size. Um, and I was also given just, you know, go and spend 12 hours a day outside and you'll be fine. Well, I don't know who can spend 12 hours a day outside in the sunlight and be fine. And if you live in Minnesota, you definitely cannot do that. <laughs> you just don't have that amount of sun, sunshine here. Um, I was also sent to cognitive behavioral therapy um, from one of the top medical facilities in Minnesota. I was told to exercise more, which is something that I actually used to be a very avid um, fitness buff. So, you know, when I heard that initially, I thought, oh, this is great. If, if I could get back to where I was, because at this point I'd stopped exercising, if I could get to back to where I was, that would be wonderful. But it turns out that was actually the worst advice I had gotten. So you were, you say you were a fitness buff, and I know you mentioned when we were chatting earlier that uh, you're a mountain or were a mountain climber. Yeah. Tell me, tell me a bit about that. So I, in twenty about two thousand five or six, I decided I really wanted to get into working out. I thought I had a side job that I was working out because I was working in the liquor store and lifting kegs of beer all the time and, uh, or not kegs, cases and, um, realized, you know what, this really isn't working out. I'm not, I'm not getting buff. So I joined a gym. I eventually quit the gym and started doing some really intense workouts. Um, some of the most intense ones that are out there. Um, and then wanted to go one step further with it. Okay. I can do all these great physical things, but what can I do with it? So I decided to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. Um, I'd done some hiking and, and some climbing before, but never in my life had I climbed a mountain before and went to Africa and summited Mount Kilimanjaro, which is 19,400 feet. Um, biggest accomplishment of my life in many ways. <laughs> wow. Uh and what was that experience like physically? I've had some friends go and some of them weren't affected by the altitude and others were really impacted. It was really interesting. The group I went with had a mix of people from age 18 to 67. And the 18 year old guy who was the buff guy that, you know, you think he's going to be making it up. He was sick on day one with altitude sickness and he, eventually had to be taken down on the day before we summited. Um, for me, it, it was really a challenge. There's a point a day before we summited that I got a migraine and got really sick. The altitude was getting to me. I was just sheer exhaustion. I mean, camping outside in extreme temperatures because you, with Kilimanjaro, you start out in like a rainforest and you go through all the different climates and you end up in basically a climate zone where a everything is freezing and you're, you're basically winter camping. And it was just a lot for me and for my first experience. Um, but made it up there is experience of a lifetime. It's something I'm so glad I did because physically it's, I think helped me with my illness in the sense that, okay, if I can take on a huge challenge like that, having, having never done something like that before, I can take on other physical challenges to myself. But then also mentally as well, it was a huge mental achievement. Whenever something comes up that I'm challenged by or nervous about or something like that, I always think of 
okay, if I can do that, I can do this. This is certainly much easier and much quicker. So it, it really was an experience of a lifetime and seeing the culture was amazing as well too. Wow. So uh, it's like you say, it really in some ways prepared you for living with a chronic illness. Yes, definitely. So while you're going to all these doctors and you're being told to exercise and have cognitive behavioral therapy and all of these sort of psychological treatments, for lack of a better word, uh, what were you thinking? I really didn't know. I mean, I, I thought all I had was a sleeping disorder because in the beginning, that's really mostly what it was, was just exhaustion. Um, I went to the sleep clinic um, and they gave me medications that they said were going to help me sleep. And I really just thought it was some sort of sleep condition that I had. But then um, in 2016, more symptoms started coming up um, as far as um, memory loss, vision loss, um, swollen lymph nodes. I was getting if I'd get sick with one thing, I'd get sick with multiple. It would make me susceptible to other things very quickly. It was kind of like once I got a cold, it was a downhill. Um, my health went downhill very quickly. Um, and things just kept piling up. It's like I went from what I thought was the sleeping situation to something that had so many more components to it that were all very new to me. And so what's your doctor doing at this point? Um, well, there are no doctors in Minnesota that um, treat myalgic encephalitis. So um, at this point, I'm really not getting care specifically for my illness um, because there simply is no one that I can go to here. I'm on a waiting list to go to Stanford University for care at this point. Oh, sorry. I meant um, when you started to get much sicker back in 2016. Oh. Okay. What was your doctor doing at that point? Oh, okay. Uh, well, my doctor basically told me that um, this was over her head. Um, so I ended up going to multiple other doctors. And basically, they just rotated me around to different um, specialties. So I went to infectious disease. I went to rheumatology. I went to internal medicine. Um, I went to all different types of doctors. I went to, um, I'm still seeing a neurologist for some issues related to that. Um, but I just kept getting rotated around and continually they weren't really finding anything that was, they were saying, this is what's causing all your problems. Um, it wasn't until I finally went um, to one clinic in Minnesota that diagnosed me with uh, myalgic encephalitis or as they call it, chronic fatigue syndrome. Mm-hmm. And so what was it like th- that day? What was that appointment like getting that diagnosis? To be honest, even though I, I didn't, well, I understood that it was, there was no current cure for it. It honestly was kind of a relief because I just gone through a year of trial and error and nobody knowing what's going on. And they're just kind of throwing things at the wall and seeing what's going to stick and work. So I kind of felt relieved in kind of a weird way to have like a name to it. Um, But at that point, I really had no idea still what it was. So my relief was kind of short lived until I did my own research. (laughs) And then what happened when you did your own research? Um, Well, I learned 
I would say a preliminary introduction of what it was like. And then I went to a three-day course by a medical provider um, that talked all about, you know, the strategies for minimizing relapses and managing the disease. Um, and I thought, once again, okay, I'm in good shape. I've got all these strategies. Um, but then I did further research, looked at some more authoritative resources and realized that some of the protocols that they were telling me that I should do, such as exercising more, which initially I, I loved the thought of that, um, or cognitive behavioral therapy were actually doing me more harm than good and it actually caused a setback in my health. Um, how, how did cognitive behavioral therapy cause a setback? It was kind of reinforcing that I should be doing these things and progressing with like this workout plan the physical therapist had given me um, that I should be progressing with it. And in the end, the only thing they ended up helping me with was because I had memory loss, I was forgetting where I put things. I was losing my keys. I was losing my work badge. I was losing things. And so she's brainstorming with me ways to remember that. And I thought, you know, I don't need a therapist to help me brainstorm ideas like this. And the helping me with the working out was causing me relapses. So it, it just seemed very, it was a very short-lived experience. I, I think it's important that we distinguish between the CBT that you received and how it was framed compared to what I'm sure the majority of people think about cognitive behavioral therapy in the context of a chronic illness where it's about adapting to having a chronic illness. Mm -hmm. Whereas the CBT you experienced, it was framed around trying to overcome poor beliefs or erroneous beliefs about your health. Mm -hmm. It's very, go ahead. And by increasing your exercise, that that was the other part of it, to change your thoughts and change your behaviors and you'll get better. Right. It was very much focused on that. And, and as a person, I'm extremely optimistic, happy, positive person. Um, and so them telling me to work out, again, I, I, I'm a person who loves to work out. So this is kind of like music to my ears. But then... And, and they were encouraging me to do so, but then I would I would do so, and I would just end up with a relapse, which would cause me to be in bed for an entire weekend. Um, it came to the point where, like, even something as simple as like thinking what I'm going to eat for dinner, I would have to think about how much chewing is involved in that. Like, I went from exercising at a high intensity level to, okay can I just have oatmeal because chewing a sandwich is going to be too hard for me to chew because that's just going to take energy I don't have. I mean, it got from one extreme to the other extreme. That's a really hard thing for people who have not had ME or have been really sick with a, a chronic illness to understand how, like you describe having to choose what you're going to eat for dinner based on how much effort it'll take to chew it. Mm-hmm. I find it odd myself. I mean, when I think about it, I mean, I, before I got sick, I never thought twice about what I ate or the fact that there's energy involved in eating my food. You know, you think of food, energy is going in, but 
it, it even sounds weird to me now, but when I think of myself, when I'm in those moments of relapse, chewing my food is too much or even keeping my eyes open just to watch TV is too much. Um, it's just too much stimulation or to, in the case of chewing food, too much energy is being consumed that sometimes I feel like I'm losing more energy than I'd be gaining by intaking the food. So for a while there, I actually lost quite a bit of weight um, just because I was too tired to get up. And even if it was just getting up and going, grabbing something that was already made, that was too much energy. But then also then the fact of chewing it and following it and all of that just became too much, took too much energy. It just wasn't worth it. Right. Uh, so that you're fairly sick at that point. Um, if you're having to weigh how much energy it's going to take to chew food, that that's pretty ill. Mm -hmm. And so what, what happened then? I basically, at some point, I, so I went to law school and I'm a, a lawyer by trade. So research is kind of my thing. Um, so I just started doing a lot of research on the internet and learning on my own about the illness and learning about all the um, misinformation that was out there about that and the myths and the, you know, I, I don't even know the, the, quite the right word for it, but learning what really I should be doing rather than what I initially was told. And that really made a big change for me in my health. I stopped pushing myself to try to exercise um, because I was having, and I still occasionally have this where I have what I call blackouts, where I think I must just be getting so exhausted that I will black out and you could pound on my door, you can call me a hundred times and I will not hear any of that for hours. And then I will come to, and it's like coming out of this, deep dark hole and I will feel like a semi hit me and I will be just as tired and I will feel terrible um and it just like that that has decreased a little bit because I've stopped trying to do some of the things I was originally told to do by some of the medical professionals I went to such as exercising um was probably the biggest one so that must be very frightening to uh you're having these blackouts, which sound like unconsciousness to me. Mm -hmm. How were yeah. you, how were you dealing with that? <laughs> it was very scary because I, I mean, I called them blackouts. I don't know what, what the, what really was going on, but, and it never would happen um, when I was out in public. It's like, I knew it was coming on and I would know like lay down now and just, you're going to let, just let go because, you know, you put on this public face and try to hide as many of your symptoms as you can. But when I come home and it just all kind of goes downhill and I know I can just let myself relax and not put on any kind of persona of health or anything. And that's then when that would kind of hit me, but it was very scary because I always thought, what if something happens and, you know, people are pounding on my door or something and, I'm unconscious and I can't be woken up, you know? Yeah, it sounds very frightening. 
So you're on this program of exercise and CBT and that's making you worse. And because you come from this research background, being a lawyer, you started to do your own research, recognize that that's the exact wrong thing to do for this illness mm -hmm. and started uh, resting hard. Yes. So the turnaround for me, there's two turnarounds. One is stopping those two things. Um, that really helped quite a bit. It's decreased the blackouts quite a bit. Um, they're very infrequent now. But the other problem I still had was the post-exertional malaise or PEM was that I was still doing too much because when I felt good, I would do what I need to do or think like I should get a lot done today because I feel somewhat decent or decent for what was my new norm. And I would do a lot of things. And then the next day I would just be in terrible shape. And so learning to pace for me has been really, really hard because I've always been an incredibly motivated person. When I went to law school, I graduated with top honors. Like everything I do, I want to try to do my very best. And for me to really slow down and realize like everything, every email doesn't have to be answered today. Every task doesn't need to be done today. Um, and just accept that. That's still something I'm learning and hopefully getting better at every day, but things can constantly throw a wrench in those plans. But um, that's probably my biggest downfall right now is just not remembering to pace. Um, so now for my day-to-day -day life is whenever somebody asks me to do something, I have to look at my, my current day or the day before the event, the day of the event, and the day after the event in order to see if I've got my buffer zones to rest up for it, and then look into the event to see if I'm gonna have enough energy for it or if it's gonna cause me more harm than good. Um, and sometimes I go into something knowing that it's going to cause me to relapse, but I kind of weigh it out and decide whether or not it's worth it. Um, and for the few occasions that I do say it's worth it, I, I do definitely end up paying the price the next day for it. And paying the price, what uh, effect does that have on you? That typically would mean the entire day laying on my couch. If I'm lucky, I can open my eyes and watch TV. Otherwise, it would be going to bed that night for about 10 hours going downstairs to my couch and laying on my couch until the end of the day. Um, and like I said, if I'm lucky, I can watch TV. Otherwise, I'm just going to listen to TV that's softly on in the background. Um, eating, again, depending how bad it is, becomes optional or very minimal um, because of the preparation, the cleanup, the chewing, all of that. Um, and then when it's time to go to bed, I go right back up to bed and basically I've done nothing productive for the day, which um, that's something too is took some acceptance for me to understand that doing that is, um, that self-care is, is productive. Um, and that was something that took me a little while to accept that that's actually productive and that helped me kind of get through the feelings that I had an unproductive day and what a waste it was. Now I look at it as, okay, that was a productive day. I took care of myself. I did what I needed to do. I'm, you know, in better shape for tomorrow. Right. So it's, it sounds like the uh, sort of willpower and the habit of training physically and working hard at your career 
you had to use those same skills, but in a very different way. So with the physicalness and with uh, pursuing your career, when things got tougher, you just tried harder. Mm -hmm. Um, But now the smart thing to do when things get tougher is you need to rest to be Mm -hmm. able to do anything. It's a completely different mindset, yes. And so you're still managing to work as a lawyer during, during this entire period of time up till today? I am, though I, work, I have a work-from-home accommodation because just the, um, every other day I work from home because just the act of getting dressed, showered, I mean, Sundays is just getting up and dressed and taking a shower, that's used all my energy for the day. Um, so working from home every other day gives me a little bit more time to sleep in before I have to start my work day. I don't have the stress of a commute and the showering, the getting ready, putting on the happy face, which that, that does actually take quite a bit of energy to, you know, have people come up to you as a manager and, and be happy and cheerful when you really are in a lot of pain. So how is it uh, working out with your employer, them having to accommodate your illness? Um, I think the first challenge I had was because um, here in America, they call it chronic fatigue syndrome. And to a lot of people, that just sounds like I'm, I'm just really tired. And there's so much more to it than that, I'm, that. I've stopped calling it that um, and and used the more um, medical terminology for it because um, it's not just fatigue. It's like fatigue is one piece of it, of so many other things for me. Um, That that was a real struggle at first for them to accept that this isn't just, um, I'm a little tired and I need a nap kind of thing. Yeah, so the the term chronic fatigue syndrome really sort of uh, belittles the actual disease itself. So it sounds like you had to do some education of your employer. Absolutely. Yes. And so you're also involved in the ME community. Tell me about that and how did you get involved and what are you doing? Um, So I'm doing quite a few things. Um, a couple of things. So I, I have done some volunteer work for the CDC with um, revamping some of their myalgic encephalitis um, documentation for providers um, and, and caregivers and such. And who's the CDC? Oh, I'm sorry, the Center for Disease Control. Okay. Um, and then I also do some volunteer work for a very active um, state organization, not my current, not the state I live in, but another state. I do all their social media work to help raise awareness of their um, events that they have related to this illness. And then um, me and some other people here in Minnesota formed a nonprofit called the Minnesota MECFS or Myalgic Encephalitis Flash Chronic Fatigue Syndrome Alliance. Um, to help support people in Minnesota that have it because so many people are so isolated with this disease. I'm, you know, I'm considered to be on the mild end, but there are so many people that are in the moderate or severe end that are completely housebound. They, they rarely leave their house or they're completely bed bound. And we want to find those people and help them. 
um, without there being medical support in Minnesota, we want to at least do as much as we can and let them know and give them hope that, hey, we're doing as much as we can through this organization to educate medical providers, get more doctors in our community that at least are aware of it enough to diagnose it so that someone doesn't have to go through what I went through of a year of doctors not even having heard of this illness um, or bringing it up as something to explore hopefully saving them a year of going through that and a year of money, you know, and time and all of that of going through that. Um, so I do that. Um, and then I also write a lot of articles, both to Minnesota newspapers and then um, blog articles about what it's like to live with myalgic encephalitis to create awareness in the public about this disease. Wow. So you're keeping yourself very busy when you're supposed to be resting hard. <laughs> I know. Um, the writing, though, actually came as a, it started as very therapeutic for me, actually, because I started out just, the biggest thing I, when I first got diagnosed, I actually, after being flooded with all this misinformation, I actually went out into the middle of the woods at a cabin and sorted through all of it and realized what was said in one of the books I'd brought with me was that I was grieving. And I had no idea that that's what I was doing. But once I read that, it made perfect sense. I, because I was losing so many things that were important to me. I was losing working out, which is really important to me. I was losing an active lifestyle because I'm much more homebound than I used to be. Um, I actually used to do a lot for my parents, um, who obviously are much older than me. <laughs> um, and used to help them out. And we've kind of had a role reversal, even though um, they have some needs as well, too. They actually have become my caretakers again, because I'm not able to do some of those things such as grocery shopping and um, things that you don't think take that much energy. But like, I never thought grocery shopping took a lot of energy. But boy, lifting things off the shelves into the cart, out of the cart, into the grocery bag, and then it home and in the cupboards, that, that is just exhausting for me. That's something I've kind of given up on doing permanently, I think. Yeah, I, I hit the grocery store this morning too, and my arms were getting tired from pushing the cart around. And mm -hmm. as soon as I got home, I had to lay down for about half an hour, and then I could unpack the, the two bags of groceries. <laughs> yes, oh, I hear you. <laughs> <laughs> so you talk about grief and loss. Uh, Mostly folks, when they think about grief, they think about when they lose a loved one. Um, but you talked about it in the context of losing your love for uh, athletics. Yeah, it was that. And it was kind of like losing the life I had known up to that point. Um, I lost a lot of friends, which was really shocking to me because I thought these people were my friends. And once I got a chronic illness, all of a sudden, I would say two thirds of them were gone. They were my friends that were there for me when I, you know, let's go out and have a drink after work. Let's go do this. Let's go do that. But once I couldn't really be so active, um, most of them just left. So part of it was that lifestyle, those friendships, the working out, like just so much that was a part of my life, just all of a sudden disappeared with this illness. And I really the friend part was the one that really caught me off guard, but um, just to have all of that be gone all at once. And now I feel like I'm at a place where I've replaced a lot of those things. So 
things I never thought I would do as a very avid workout person. But now I do gentle yoga or chair yoga with senior citizens, and I actually really enjoy it. Um, I do meditation. And again, that's something that someone who works out a lot and is like a doer, I thought I would never get into and I love it. So I've really been um, successful in kind of transitioning those gaps that I now had into some positive things. And I actually feel like it's in some ways, and this may sound really weird to say to some people, but getting this chronic illness in some ways has made me a better person because I think my pre-life, I was very motivated and focused and had all these goals, but they were really like my own personal goals to move myself forward. And now my goals are more focused on things that affect a broader group of people beyond me, especially through my work with um, our nonprofit and and my writing articles to create awareness in the public. It's to help people beyond me. And it's not just goals that are, you know, I certainly have goals for myself, but a lot of my goals now are more outwardly focused. Wow. Wow. That's uh, quite the transformation. And I think for a lot of folks who have never dealt with a chronic illness, that must be really hard to fathom how uh, having a chronic illness can make you a, a better person. Uh, I recently interviewed a woman who has a stage four ovarian cancer, and she said uh, the gift of cancer. She's having yeah. the same sort of experiences as you had that there's, you know, she found this other community and she was doing something very meaningful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what? I, I feel like I'm very interactive with a lot of Facebook groups and interact with people with various illnesses, mostly people that have myalgic encephalitis, but um, a lot of them, I find they're just like the most compassionate, amazing people. And I feel like what Emmy has done for me has made me more of me because I've always been someone, I'm the kind of person who is like, the friend that is always listening to the other person or listening to, you know, and is there for people. Um, and I think that one is perhaps why I lost a lot of friends because I, I was the listener and, and that, and now I was the one all of a sudden with the problem and needed the listener. And my friends were the talkers, not the listeners. So um, that may have played a part in it, but um, it's just, I feel like it's brought out the best in me, like my, my best characteristics. I'm able to use them more. I'm able to be more compassionate to people because I have a more understanding of um, what it's like because I'm personally experiencing it myself as well too now. So what do you think your future holds and what are you planning for your future? Um, well, my biggest goal right now is still pacing. Um, I still feel like I could achieve a bit better state of health if I pace myself better. But I feel like all the things I'm doing are so focused on raising awareness for the cause and that I just have a hard time giving it up and not doing something that's going to help other people that I'm probably doing it a little bit at a sacrifice of my own health. So I'm still working at trying to strike a balance between um, achieving those goals, those outwardly goals, but um, also making sure I'm taking care of myself. And um, that's something I definitely am getting better at. But I've had a few, including a house fire that's kind of thrown a wrench in all of that. But um, 
I think that also in a way was a good experience because that is life. Like you can pace yourself as much as you want in your life and then something can happen that totally throws it off and you still need to figure out how do I pace and how do I take care of myself because kind of like that phrase, you know, put on your, um, drawing a blank on the word, but your mask when you're on an airplane, Um. oxygen mask first. Yes, like putting that on first for yourself. And that's what I, that's the phrase that I kind of keep sticking in my head is like, I need to make sure I'm taking care of myself because that actually is helping other people is making sure I'm okay first. Right. And stop being selfish. Mm-hmm. To be able to help others, you need to be well enough to help others. Exactly. So a lot of folks with ME are uh, often looking for um, different treatments, trying different uh, things, off-label medications, for example. Uh, What, if anything, is next on your list of things to try or pursue? Uh, Well, currently I'm looking into going to Stanford University so I could have my first real experience with a doctor that knows what ME is. (laughs) that's unimaginable to me at this point. Um, But the main things I've tried recently was low-dose naltrexone, um, which has been very positive for me, no side effects, and it's given me a a slight amount of energy that uh, probably anybody else makes no difference, but to me, it's gotten me through some days. Um, And then a friend just got me trying curcumin. I might be saying that wrong, but it's a supplement. and I don't know if it's making a difference yet because I've just gone through a month of being in a fire and a fire aftermath that I think the extra stress might have outbalanced any effect I've gotten from it. So I'm still giving that a chance to see. Um, but at this point, I don't really have anything else on my radar yet because I feel like I'm taking a lot of supplements at this point and I'm, I really don't know if they're doing any good. I know the low-dose naltrexone is. But as far as the other ones, I mean, it's like a vitamin. You, you don't really always know if they're doing good unless, you know, you're getting a blood test to see if, you know, you're low on something. So I'm just, I just keep watching things that come out and, and learning and reading about new things that are coming out just to see if it might be a viable option for me. And then if it is, I pursue it a little bit and see what other people are saying. Great. Yeah, a lot of folks um, have had improvements with low dose naltrexone. I know uh, I have been on it now for a couple of years and I uh, a few months ago went off of it thinking, well, you know, maybe it's not helping me. Uh, But then my sleep got a lot worse. Mm -hmm. And so I I came back on it about a month ago and I'm, I'm sleeping a lot better, but it's still kind of crappy sleep. Yeah. Oh, most definitely. I have a sleep monitor and I um, look at it every morning and I can see throughout the night there's not an hour that goes by that I'm not waking up for at least a minute or two um, which explains why I wake up in the morning and I'm so exhausted is I'm just not getting a deep sleep it's just constantly somehow being interrupted throughout the night. Have you been tested for sleep apnea? I have yep um, when I went through the whole sleep study I was told that I have what's called spontaneous arousals, which is basically unexplained periods of time throughout your sleep that I am waking up or coming out of a sleep stage, briefly waking up and then going back into a sleep stage. Um, But they don't have a cause for it. They just told me that you do it more than most people do it. Um, But 
they couldn't tell me any reason for it. Um, and that was kind of at the point where they put me on a bunch of medications to try to get my brain to shut down at night. Um, and that just caused more problems than it helped. So I ended up coming off of that medication. Well, that's just a, a sleep study for folks with ME is just begging to be done because so many of us have sleep problems. Well, Lisa, thanks so much for chatting with me and sharing your story. And I hope your future holds what you want it to hold. And I think it's really inspiring that you've uh, already, considering you've only only have been sick for <laughs> you know four years or so, um, that you've already made that transformation of of viewing this illness as sort of a gift, or there are gifts within it if you can find. Right. Yeah, thanks, Lisa. Have a good yep. day. Rest hard. Yes, I certainly will be after this. <laughs> well, a big thanks to Lisa for sharing her medical hair experience and for the work she does advocating in the community. Uh, from the good news department, I was texting recently with Lisa, and she said that she had started on a new medication which has really improved her quality of life, and her Stanford appointment has been bumped to a sooner date, so she's excited that she's going to be able to get in there and see some specialists. You can find Lisa on Twitter, and her Twitter handle is at Lisa. Ally Oto. You can also read her blog, realisticoptimism.org. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and other podcast platforms. If you'd like to become a monthly supporter of Medical Error Interviews and help us increase awareness, go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to sign up to be a monthly patron. If you need the support of a counselor for your own medical error experience or dealing with chronic illness or LGBT issues or any of other life's challenges, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of Medical Error Interviews. Be kind to yourself and others.